Chapter 2 of A Sun at the Front. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mary Lou in New York City. A Sun at the Front by Edith Wharton. Chapter 2. But even if they do mobilize, mobilization is not war. Is it? Mrs. Anderson Brandt repeated across the teacups. Campton dragged himself up from the deep armchair he had inadvertently chosen. To escape from his hostess's troubled eyes, he limped across to the window and stood gazing out at the thick turf and brilliant flower borders of the garden which was so unlike his own. After a moment, he turned and glanced about him, catching the reflection of his heavy figure in a mirror dividing two garlanded panels. He had not entered Mrs. Brant's drawing-room for nearly ten years, not since the period of the interminable discussions about the choice of a school for George, and in spite of the far graver preoccupations that now weighed on him, and of the huge menace with which the whole world was echoing, he paused for an instant to consider the contrast between his clumsy person and that expensive and irreproachable room. "'You've taken away Bosit's portrait of you,' he said abruptly, looking up at the chimney-panel, which was filled with the blue and umber bloom of a Fragonard landscape. A full length of Mrs. Anderson Brandt by Bosit had been one of Mr. Brandt's wedding presents to his bride.' A Bosit portrait at that time was as much a part of such marriages as pearls and sables. Yes, Anderson thought, the dress had grown so dreadfully old-fashioned, she explained indifferently, and went on again. You think it's not war, don't you? What was the use of telling her what he thought? For years and years he had not done that, about anything. But suddenly, now, a stringent necessity had drawn them together, confronting them like any two plain people caught in a common danger, like husband and wife, for example. It is war this time, I believe, he said. She set down her cup with a hand that had begun to tremble. I disagree with you entirely, she retorted, her voice shrill with anxiety. I was frightfully upset when I sent you that telegram yesterday. But I've been lunching today with the old Duc de Monterey, you know, he fought in seventy, and with Levi Michel of the Jour, who had just seen some of the government people, and they both explained to me quite clearly that you'd made a mistake in coming up from Deauville. To save himself, Campton could not restrain the sneer. On the rare occasions when a crisis in their lives had flung them on each other's mercy, the first sensation he was always conscious of was the degree to which she bored him. He remembered the day years ago, long before their divorce, when it had first come home to him that she was always going to bore him. But he was ashamed to think of that now, and went on more patiently. You see, the situation is rather different from anything we have known before. And, after all, in 1870, all the wise people thought till the last minute that there would be no war. Her delicate face seemed to shrink and wither with apprehension. Then, what about George? she asked, the paint coming out around her haggard eyes. Campton paused a moment. 
You may suppose I've thought of that. Oh, of course. He saw she was honestly trying to be what a mother should be in talking of her only child to that child's father. But the long habit of superficiality made her stammering and inarticulate when her one deep feeling tried to rise to the surface. Campton seated himself again, taking care to choose a straight-backed chair. I see nothing to worry about with regard to George, he said. You mean, why, they won't take him. They won't want him with his medical record. Are you sure? He's so much stronger. He's gained twenty pounds. It was terrible, really, to hear her avow it in a reluctant whisper. That was the view that war made mothers take of the chief blessing they could ask for their children. Campton understood her and took the same view. George's wonderful recovery, the one joy his parents had shared in the last twenty years, was now a misfortune to be denied and assembled. They looked at each other like accomplices, the same thought in their eyes. If only the boy had been born in America. It was grotesque that the whole of joy or anguish should suddenly be found to hang on a geographical accident. After all, we're Americans. This is not our job, Campton began. No, he saw she was waiting and knew for what. So, of course, if there were any trouble, but there won't be. If there were, though, I shouldn't hesitate to do what was necessary. Use any influence. Oh, then we agree, broke from her in a cry of wonder. The unconscious irony of the exclamation struck him and increased his irritation. He remembered the tone, undefinably compassionate, in which Dastrey had said, I perfectly understand a foreigner's taking that view. But was he a foreigner? Campton asked himself. And what was the criterion of citizenship if he, who owed to France everything that had made life worthwhile, could regard himself as owing her nothing, now that for the first time he might have something to give her? Well, for himself, that argument was all right. Preposterous as he thought, war, any war, he would have offered himself to France on the instant if she had had any use for his lame carcass. But he had never bargained to give her his only son. Mrs. Brandt went on in excited argument. Of course, you know how careful I always am to do nothing about him without consulting you. But since you feel about it as we do, she blushed under her faint rouge. The we had slipped out accidentally, and Campton, aware of turning hard-lipped and grim, sat waiting for her to repair the blunder. Through the years of his poverty, it had been impossible not to put up, on occasions, with that odious first-person plural, as long as his wretched inability to make money had made it necessary that his wife's second husband should pay for his son's keep. Such allusions had been part of Campton's long expiation. But even then, he had tacitly made his former wife understand that, when they had to talk of the boy, he could bear her saying, I think, or Anderson thinks this or that, but not we think it. And in the last few years since Campton's unforeseen success had put him, to the astonishment of everyone concerned, in a position of financial independence, Anderson had almost entirely dropped out of their talk about George's future. 
Mrs. Brant was not a clever woman, but she had a social adroitness that sometimes took the place of intelligence. On this occasion, she saw her mistake so quickly and blushed for it so painfully that at any other time Campton would have smiled away her distress. But at the moment, he could not stir a muscle to help her. Look here, he broke out. There are things I've had to accept in the past and shall have to accept in the future. The boy is to go to Bullard and Brant's. It's agreed. I'm not sure enough of being able to provide for him for the next few years to interfere with your plans in that respect. But I thought it was understood once and for all. She interrupted him excitedly. Oh, of course, of course. You must admit I've always respected your feeling. He acknowledged awkwardly. Yes. Well, then, won't you see that this situation is different, terribly different, and that we ought all to work together? If Anderson's influence can be of use... Anderson's influence. Campton's gorge rose against the phrase. It was always Anderson's influence that had been invoked, and none knew better than Campton himself how justly, when the boy's future was under discussion. But in this particular case, the suggestion was intolerable. Of course, he interrupted dryly, but as it happens, I think I can attend to this job myself. She looked down at her huge rings, hesitated visibly, and then flung tact to the winds. What makes you think so? You don't know the right sort of people. It was a long time since she had thrown that at him, not since the troubled days of their marriage, when it had been the cruelest taunt she could think of. Now it struck him simply as a particularly unpalatable truth. No, he didn't know the right sort of people. Unless, for instance, among his new patrons, such a man as Jürgenstein answered to the description. But if there were war, on what side would a cosmopolitan like Jürgenstein turn out to be? Anderson, you see, she persisted, losing sight of everything in the need to lull her fears. Anderson knows all the political people. In a business way, of course, a big banker has to. If there's really any chance of George's being taken, you've no right to refuse Anderson's help. None whatever. Campton was silent. He had meant to reassure her, to reaffirm his conviction that the boy was sure to be discharged. But as their eyes met, he saw that she believed this no more than he did, and he felt the contagion of her incredulity. But if you are so sure there's not going to be war, he began, As he spoke, he saw her face change, and was aware that the door behind him had opened, and that a short man, bald and slim, was advancing at a sort of mincing trot across the pompous garlands of the Savonnerie carpet. Campton got to his feet. He had expected Anderson Brandt to stop at sight of him, mumble a greeting, and then back out of the room as usual. But Anderson Brandt did nothing of the sort. He merely hastened his trot toward the tea-table. He made no attempt to shake hands with Campton, but bowing shyly and stiffly said, I understood you were coming, and hurried back on the chance to consult. Campton gazed at him without speaking. They had not seen each other since the extraordinary occasion two years before, when Mr. Brandt furtively, one day at dusk, had come to his studio to offer to buy George's portrait. And, as their eyes met, the memory of that visit reddened both their faces. Mr. Brandt was a compact little man of about sixty. 
his sandy hair, just turning grey, was brushed forward over a baldness which was ivory white at the crown and became brick pink above the temples before merging into the tanned and freckled surface of his face. He was always dressed in carefully cut clothes of a discreet grey, with a tie to match, in which even the plump pearl was grey, so that he reminded Campton of a dry, perpendicular insect in protective tints. And the fancy was encouraged by his cautious manner, and the way he had of peering over his glasses as if they were part of his armour. His feet were small and pointed, and seemed to be made of patent leather and shaking hands with him was like clasping a bunch of twigs. It had been Campton's lot, on the rare occasions of his meeting Mr. Brandt, always to see this perfectly balanced man in moments of disequilibrium, when the attempt to simulate poise probably made him more rigid than nature had created him. But today his perturbation betrayed itself in the gesture with which he drummed out a tune on the back of the gold and platinum cigar case he had unconsciously drawn from his pocket. After a moment he seemed to become aware of what he had in his hand, and pressing the sapphire spring held out the case with the remark, Coronas. Campton made a movement of refusal, and Mr. Brandt, overwhelmed, thrust the guitar case away. I ought to have taken one. I may need him, Campton thought. And Mrs. Brandt said, addressing her husband, He thinks as we do. Exactly. Campton winced. Thinking as the Brandts did was at all times so foreign to his nature and his principles that his first impulse was to protest. But the sight of Mr. Brandt, standing there helplessly and trying to hide the twitching of his lip by stroking his lavender-scented moustache with a discreetly curved hand, moved the painter's imagination. Poor devil, he'd give all his millions if the boy were safe, he thought, and he doesn't even dare to say so. It satisfied Campton's sense of his rights that these two powerful people were hanging on his decision like frightened children, and he answered, looking at Mrs. Brandt, "'There's nothing to be done at present, absolutely nothing, "'except,' he added abruptly, "'to take care not to talk in this way to George.' Mrs. Brandt lifted a startled gaze. "'What do you mean? "'If war is declared, you can't expect me not to speak of it to him.' "'Speak of it as much as you like, but don't drag him in. "'Let him work out his own case for himself.' He went on with an effort." It's what I intend to do. But you said you'd use every influence, she protested obtusely. Well, I believe this is one of them. She looked down resignedly at her clasped hands, and he saw her lips tighten. My telling her that has been just enough to start her on the other tack, he groaned to himself, all her old stupidities rising up around him like a fog. Mr. Brandt gave a slight cough, and removed his protecting hand from his lips. Mr. Campton is right, he said, quickly and timorously. I take the same view entirely. George must not know that we are thinking of using any means. He coughed again and groped for the cigar case. As he spoke, there came over Campton a sense of their possessing a common ground of understanding that Campton had never found in his wife. 
He had had a hint of the same feeling, but had voluntarily stifled it on the day when Mr. Brandt, apologetic yet determined, had come to the studio to buy George's portrait. Campton had seen then how the man suffered from his failure, but had chosen to attribute his distress to the humiliation of finding there were things his money could not purchase. Now that judgment seemed as unimaginative as he had once thought Mr. Brandt's overture. Campton turned on the banker a look that was almost brotherly. We men know, the look said, and Mr. Brandt's parched cheek was suffused with a flush of understanding. Then, as if frightened at the consequences of such complicity, he repeated his bow and went out. When Campton issued forth into the Avenue Marigny, it came to him as a surprise to see the old unheeding life of Paris still going on. In the golden decline of day, the usual throng of idlers sat under the horse chestnuts of the Champs-Élysées. Children scampered between turf and flowers, and the perpetual stream of motors rolled up the central avenue to the restaurants beyond the gates. Under the last trees of the Avenue Gabriel, the painter stood looking across the Place de la Concorde. No doubt the future was dark. He had guessed from Mr. Brandt's precipitate arrival that the banks and the stock exchange feared the worst. But what could a man do whose convictions were so largely formed by the play of things on his retina, when in the setting sun all that majesty of space and light and architecture was spread out before him undisturbed? Paris was too triumphant a fact not to argue down his fears. There she lay in the security of her beauty, and once more proclaimed herself eternal. End of chapter 2